I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 189. Hey, and just real quick, I want to say thank you all who reached out over this last week about Bo. It was so heartwarming and kind of you all to reach out and send letters and, you know, post things on the Facebook group. Thank y'all, like, truly so much. And it's one of those things that almost everybody has a story about and, you know, it brings up memories for each person. And so it's crazy how it is just so impactful even when you hear that somebody else is going through it. Yeah. One other thing that we wanted to say, a little bit of business. Well, actually two things. One thing is new merch is up. So if you have not, which we may have said this already, but maybe not. Anyway, so if you haven't been over to the website so that you can link to the merch store, you really should head on over there because there's some cute fucking shit. That's a review right there. <laughs> Five stars. <laughs> 10 out of 10 would recommend. So thank you so much, Mandy Diamond, for helping us put that together. You know, you know, doing all the work. Yeah, the designing. Yeah, we sent you our chicken scratch and you made it beautiful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the other news is, if you're called up, you may not have noticed yet, but if you're listening to some older episodes, you may have noticed that now we have ads. Dun, dun, dun. It was a hard decision for us to decide whether to sign with, an, well, I guess it's a network, but it's not like a network because they don't have any like creative control. They just help with the ads. So everything about the podcast is still ours. There's nobody else has control over what content we put out or anything like that but us. But with Donna losing her job and, you know, I'm going to talk for you, but with Donna losing her job and going full-time podcast, we kind of didn't have a choice. Yep. So it's a way, you know, it's us moving forward in the podcast. So we hope that you will all support us in this decision because we didn't, it's not something that we took lightly because we know that so many of y'all love the fact that there aren't ads, but in order for Donna to be able to be full-time podcast, it was a decision that we had to make that was best for us and to continue to grow the podcast. Yeah. And we really did take everything into consideration and it's hard when this has been my dream. Every time we do the ask me anything, it's like, this is it. This is my dream job to do. And we want to grow and continue growing. And everything just kind of worked out to do this. Also, though, on Patreon, we're going to have ad-free episodes. So if you're on Patreon, if you're in the Creepinati, nothing's going to change for you. So obviously, we hope that y'all can continue to support us and, you know, understand the decision to make ads. But we wanted to be very transparent on what was going on and why we were doing it and, you know, all the things. Yeah, so you can hear us do ads soon, like us doing them. We're going to fuck up. Yeah, we're going to fuck up bad. Can you say fuck? (laughs) Just kidding, because we have control. (laughs) This is our first episode post-Halloween. Are you Halloween drunk? I mean, not on alcohol because you can't drink, but, you know, blood thinners and shit. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's hard, though, because we haven't had Halloween yet. But it's literally been, we've been eat, drinking, sleeping, and breathing Halloween for a long time because of the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, so it's weird. So I'm like, my Halloween tank is full, but it's not yet October 31st. I feel like I haven't watched as many movies and stuff this year as I usually do. Yeah. 
I did watch last night Hotel Transylvania, and that was the first time I'd ever watched that. And Donna is over me because I keep going, blah, blah, I don't say, blah, blah. I mean, she said that at least 20, no, honestly, at least 10 times in the last 10 minutes. Well, it's because I told you that I watched it. And so it brought it back to my uh-huh. memory. My, yeah. You know. Yeah. So, blah, blah. Oh, my God. Let's move on. But before we do, we have to blah, blah, our Patreoners. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, thank you so much, Selena S. from California. Anything for Selena's. I was about to say that's perfect. Sorry. <laughs> like. Because she's Selena S. Yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> like, I don't know. I'm just like, oh, my God, it's perfect. <laughs> okay, sorry. Meanwhile, they probably hate when people say that to them, and they're like, fuck, delete Patreon. (laughs) Okay. Katie P. from Missouri. Emily H. from Ohio. Sarah Francis D. from Alabama. Rachel P. from Illinois. Madison G. from California. Christina R. from California. And Jesse M. from Indiana. Thank y'all so very much for joining Patreon. We really appreciate the support because like we said, it keeps this podcast afloat and, you know, Donna from Going Hungry. So thank you, thank you, thank you. (laughs) And if you want an episode shout out, you know the drill. I say it every fucking week. Head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. All right. Picture it. California, 1976. California. No doubt about it. Oh, Lord. We won't get hit with copyright infringement on that one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, you're working on the set for a TV show. It's on location at a funhouse. And you're tasked to move a weird wax dummy that's hanging in the funhouse. Well, you, being you, clumsy as fuck, the dummy's arm breaks off. (laughs) No harm, no foul. You'll put it back in place. But then you realize, oh, shit. This isn't like the mannequins or the dolls that you've played with before. This has bone and muscle inside. What? And that's when it hits you that this dummy wasn't a dummy at all. It was a corpse. Sounds like a Hollywood script or your worst nightmare, but it's actually... True. This happened. It happened on the set of The Six Million Dollar Man in December 1976. This is a very current story, even though it's from the 70s, with all that shit on the Alec Baldwin's new movie. Yeah, which is wild. And terrifying. That's like literally my example. Well, that's not my example, but it's just like my example of why scary, like haunted, haunted houses, houses are yeah. so scary. Because my example for that is always, oh, the beginning to any scary movie would be, oh, they're in a haunted house. They think that person with a chainsaw, it's it's a chainsaw without a chain on it. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, no, it's actually there and you're all about to die. Yep. Same girl. That's been my fear since I was little. Also, though, I've always been weirded out by wax figures. Yeah. I mean, I would go to like that. What is it? Madame Trousseau's? Uh-huh. I mean, I would go, but. Same, but it's so weird because they are lifelike. But could you imagine if you found out that what you thought was a dummy or a wax figure? Yes. Was actually a person? 
Mm-mm. Hard pass. Can you imagine had you been someone who went to this fun house and like had rubbed up against this dummy that was hanging there? Nope. Hard pass. Yeah. So let me paint you a picture of what this body looked like. So it did have wax on it. And it had some day glow paint, so it was like bright reddish orange. It almost looked skeletal, but it still had like its skin and everything on it. The height was 5'3". It was about 50 pounds. And also because the body had been moved and used for years and years, we'll come to find out, there were a lot of missing parts like missing fingers, both ears, some toes were gone, and only a few strands of hair remained. Also, it was hung by a noose in this funhouse at the Pike in Long Beach, California. And to hang it like they wanted to, they drilled a hole through the neck of this body. So, of course, they call the police, they call 911, all the things, And fast forward a few days, the L.A. County coroner examined the body and found that there was a bullet hole in the chest of this corpse and also some original incisions from an autopsy. And then when the coroner tested the tissue, they found arsenic. And this helped them narrow down when he died because they used arsenic in embalming fluid in the early 1900s. Okay, that's not where I thought that was going. I was like, oh, they can look back at county coroner records to see who died of arsenic or (laughs) like how long. Because, you know, you can tell arsenic how long someone's been poisoned based on where it is in their hair growth. Ooh. So that's where I thought that was going, but it wasn't. Okay, forensic files. Look, I don't fall asleep watching that for nothing. There were a lot of things that helped identify the body, but some major clues were found in his mouth. There was a penny from 1924 and some ticket stubs from Sideshow and from Lewis Sonny's Museum of Crime. Just can you imagine like this ticket stubs like shoved in his mouth? No. And that's when they were able to call and find out that the body belonged to a man named Elmer McCurdy. They then turned to a forensic anthropologist to confirm the identification, which they did. So, who is Elmer McCurdy, and how did he become a funhouse prop? Also, y'all, Carrie says she can't tell a difference, but I feel like I can. I slept on my mouth weird, apparently, and the left side of my bottom lip is really swollen, and I feel like I'm talking weird. So, if you're like, what's wrong with her? That's it. Who does that? Me. That's who. Like, literally no one but you. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Like, it looks like you had dental work. (laughs) That's what I feel like. That's what I feel like when I have my cavity filled and stuff. (laughs) Elmer was born in Washington, Maine on January 1st, 1880. Way before, but that's my brother's birthday. His mother was Sadie McCurdy, who was 17 and unwed. His father is unknown, but thought it could be Sadie's cousin, Charles Smith. Yes. Yeah. But it is allegedly, we don't know. Because Sadie was 17 and unwed, there was, of course, a lot of shame, 
shame on the family name, all of that shit, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, Dumb. yes. And so in order to save Sadie from all of that, her brother George and his wife Helen adopted Elmer and raised him as their own. Ten years later, George died from tuberculosis, and so Sadie, Helen, and Elmer all moved to Bangor, Maine. Like, from Washington, Maine to Bangor. For reasons unknown, but I can only imagine, like, the guilt and everything she felt, Sadie ultimately told Elmer that he was her son, but she didn't know who his father was. Elmer didn't know how to take this information. He had grown up thinking one thing, and now his life had completely flip-flopped around. And he was mad at everyone for lying to him. He started to rebel and self-medicate with drinking. And at this time, he was barely a teenager. You read my mind. I was about to say, how old was he? Elmer ended up becoming a plumber and worked as a lead miner as well. However, he was never one to hold down a job because of his addiction to alcohol. All of that would change, though, because in 1907, Elmer joined the Army. He was stationed in Leavenworth, Kansas, and was a machine gun operator, and also was trained in the use of nitroglycerin. He didn't have extensive training with this, but it was for demolition purposes, and he knew what he needed to in a pinch. But by 1910, Elmer was honorably discharged and made his way to St. Joseph, Kansas to meet up with an old friend he had previously met in the Army. So he was discharged on November 7th, and on November 19th, he and his friend, well, they were both arrested for possessing burglary paraphernalia. And what were those items, you ask? Glad you did. Uh, Some hacksaws, some nitroglycerin funnels, some gunpowder, and some sacks for money. Damn. And they were like, oh, no, sir. It's not what you think. We're working on a foot-operated machine gun. We are inventors. Mm -hmm. We are not burglars at all. Okay. Well, this went to trial. And in January of 1911, the jury believed him. They found him not guilty. Wow. And by March of that year, his life of crime began. It was short-lived because, well, Elmer wasn't that great of a criminal. He met up with three men in Oklahoma, one whom he had met while he was in jail. They all masterminded a heist of the Iron Mountain, Missouri Pacific train. Mouthful. Yeah. There was a safe on board that supposedly contained $4,000. Everything was going great. They stopped the train. They located the safe. And see, Elmer had told this guy in jail all about his time in the Army, all about his training, all about, like, what he could bring to the table. So it was Elmer's time to shine because he could get into that safe with nitroglycerin because he could... He could save it from a heart attack. (laughs) It's used in explosives. That's a joke. I know. (laughs) Also, I thought about that every time because my nanny always had nitroglycerin things. Every time I wrote it, I thought about that. So he put the nitroglycerin on the door. 
But he put a little too much, and by a little too much, I mean a lot too much, and pretty much everything was destroyed. Like, the sides of the rail car, blown off. Oh, my God. The safe, almost destroyed. Most of the money, destroyed. They were only able to get away with about $450 in silver coin. But even they were, like, melted into the safe, so they had to use a crowbar to salvage what they could. So that was, like, scrap metal, not just, like, ooh, some coins. No, no, no. But you see, Elmer was like, oh, that sucks. Sorry. Just give me my little cut. I'll be out of your hair. Like, cool, cool, cool. Because what he would do is he would slip out before they had to deal with the local police. He would move, work as a plumber for a bit until his drinking got in the way. But all the while, he had his ear to the ground and was shaking hands with the riffraff crowd. And so he never really stuck with the same crowd over and over. He was always on the move. However, police were on to him because... When they found the people he was with, the 'er ne'er-do-wellers he was with on that train robbery, Mm -hmm. uh, they did find some explosive materials. And right beside that, what do you think they found right beside those materials? A lighter. Elmer's Army Discharge Papers. What a dumbass. (laughs) Poor Elmer. Tell me you're a shitty criminal without telling me you're (laughs) a shitty criminal. Poor Elmer. Poor (laughs) Elmer. He was like, got a jet. Bye. And then basically left like a calling card. Yeah. So you got to keep those papers. That's how you get your discounts and shit. Like Lowe's. (laughs) So... By September 1911, Elmer had met up with two more men. They had formalized a plan to rob the Citizens Bank in Kansas. Again, Elmer sold these men on his skill set that he had learned while being in the Army, but didn't quite deliver again. They all took two hours hammering their way through the bank wall. When they finally got through, they were like, okay, Now, do your thing. And he used the nitroglycerin again. But this time, it didn't open the safe. It only, like, it opened the vault door. But it blasted it out. And it demolished the bank's, like, main room. And, like, blew out the windows. The guy needs to go back to math. (laughs) And so then he was like, oh, shit. Okay, so I got to do one more. And then we'll get into this vault. Like, we'll get into the safe. We're in the vault now. We need to be in the safe. Well, he did another one. So they all run out. Like, okay, okay, we're going to get this money. Well, there was no kaboom because it failed to ignite. So when Elmer went back in to figure out why, like, what happened, the lookout got spooked, ran off. So they were like, okay, let's just, like, get what we can and go. So they only took coins that were outside the safe, and that was about $150. They split up after that, and Elmer was on the move again. Again, not so lucky in his criminal mastermindery. Well, he ended up in Oklahoma, stayed in the hay shed of one of his friends for a few weeks, and just drank. Well, after that break, or whatever it was, he was ready for something big. 
Like, sure, the others hadn't been successful, but had made enough to buy the booze and the train fare. So, like, okay, okay, he's he can do it. Can he, though? <laughs> well, in October, that's when he heard that the Katy train in Oklahoma would be carrying $400,000 in cash as a royalty payment to the Osage Nation. Why would they just, like, announce that kind of shit? I mean, people who work on the things. People I guess dirty. so. People talk. Yeah. yeah. Well, so he got two men to plan a robbery with him. However, in a series of unfortunate events for Elmer, they stopped a passenger train and not the Katie train. <laughs> so instead of the $400,000 in cash, they got $46 from the <laughs> mail clerk. Okay. Two demijohns of whiskey, which is like the same thing that the water comes in when you go to Lowe's and you get the thing. Yeah. Or like those fancy water cooler things. Yeah. That. So two things of whiskey of that. A revolver, a coat, and a watch. I mean, he hit pay dirt. <laughs> Not quite the haul that they were hoping for. And Elmer didn't even get to use his explosives this time. Lucky for those people on the train. <laughs> and this must be noted that a newspaper at the time called it, quote, one of the smallest in history of train robbery. Oh, damn. You know, that's a blow to the fucking ego. Right? Right? <laughs> Elmer was defeated. So he went back to the hay shed and drank some of the whiskey. He wasn't feeling tip top because... By this time, he had tuberculosis from working in the lead mines. But nothing a little whiskey couldn't cure, right? And so he drank and drank until he fell asleep. And he woke up to a posse of sheriffs and bloodhounds. But he wasn't going down without a fight. And he ended up firing first because he had that revolver that he got from the robbery. After an hour-long shootout... Good God, how much ammunition did they have? <laughs> no, no. He was killed by a gunshot in the chest. And I don't think he, he shot any of them. I'm not surprised. He's not a good marksman. <laughs> Poor Elmer. I mean, yay that he didn't kill an officer, but... Yes, yes. I'm just saying, like, some people are just not meant to be criminals. Myself included. Well, Elmer was taken to Johnson Funeral Home in Pawhuska, Oklahoma, where he was embalmed and prepped for burial. However, no one claimed Elmer's body, and six months came and went. And the funeral director, Joseph Johnson, decided he was going to recoup the money that he spent in prepping Elmer. So... Joseph changed Elmer out of his, like, funeral clothes, put on some street gangster kind of clothes. No. Put a gun by Elmer's side, stood him up in the parlor, and then he charged visitors a nickel to see him. No. And Joseph called him the bandit who wouldn't give up, and then later called him the embalmed bandit. Well, I mean, I guess at least he told him. Right? Here's the thing. They had to pay the nickel, but they had to put the coin in Elmer's mouth. 
Shut the fuck up. Like an arcade game. Shut the fuck up. And they did. Shut the fuck up. They did that knowing he was once a living person. Like, what? People do some gross shit, man. Like, what? And that's where Elmer's body stayed for five years. Dude was making bank on his body for five years. Because at first he had him out in the parlor and was like, look at the impeccable work I do. But then when he was starting to make that money, he put him in the back corner, like in a room and was like, oh, to get to him, you got to pay that fee and, you know, all the things. There's even a story, though, that Joseph's kids put roller skates on Elmer and rolled him around the parlor, teasing and taunting the younger kids. Please tell me that's fake. No, like, I mean, it was in multiple things. That's disgusting. Like, hello, weekend at Bernie's. And I bet Joseph didn't know about that, though, because Elmer was a moneymaker. Like, Joseph was probably gone for the weekend, and the kids were like, let's do it. That's some morbid fucking shit. Right? Over the years, he had turned down multiple offers from different carnivals. Because, again, he was making money, it, you know, whatevs. But then Elmer McCurdy's two brothers showed up, and they had finally tracked him down. Damn. They wanted to give him a proper burial. So Joseph couldn't deny them his body, and so off they went. And they're like, you've been doing what with my brother? No, because they weren't his kin. (gasps) They were James and Charles Patterson from the great Patterson Carnival shows. And so they got him for free. Very scandalous. That's so shady. Mm Mm-hmm. And Elmer ended up being on display with them as an attraction for many years until he wound up in the Museum of Crime in 1922. Elmer's body was also used in two films, one called Narcotic and another called She Freak. That's a terrible name. (laughs) And in Narcotic, like, they would put Elmer's body in the lobby of the thing because he was supposed to be like this corpse of this drug addict that was dead. You know what I mean? Like it was this whole thing, but it's like, that's a real person. But no one knew that they walked by a real person. Like that wasn't a prop. God, I have so many issues with this story. Like this is all what my, like these are my worst fears. Ugh. Well, Elmer was passed back and forth through various sideshows and attractions until he ended up at the Pike, where he was hanging in the Laugh in the Dark Funhouse. And we know what happened there. So after almost 66 years of being a prop, he was given a proper burial in Guthrie, Oklahoma, in the Boot Hill section of Summit View Cemetery. And after they put him in the ground, they poured concrete over the grave to make sure he stays at rest now. Wow. Now, I really don't know this character, so I couldn't tell you anything really. But I do know there's a movie about him. But they say that Elmer is the inspiration for DC Comics' Jonah Hex. Oh, that's exactly what I was thinking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
But also, and this, you'll know who I'm talking about, but I know you'll know the memes that this <laughs> this uh, character's used in. That says a lot about me. <laughs> but I do know he was the inspiration for Skeletor because in 2017, designer Mark Taylor was interviewed on that Netflix show, The Toys That Made Us. And Mark, he was talking about this time that he was nine years old. His dad took him to the Pike Funhouse and he was like, oh my God, something smells bad. You know, and it just fell off in there. Like something wasn't right. And that's when he saw the hanging body. And he just had a gut feeling that that wasn't a dummy. Like that was a real person. Um. Okay. I only bought part of that story. He wouldn't have stunk. I, I don't know. Like he's embalmed. He's all the things. Like I don't think he would have stunk. Yeah, I don't know. And it could have been just, like, nastiness of the funhouse. I don't know. But he said that, like, it was just a gut feeling that he had that it was a real person in there. And that it looked it looked very skeletal and old. Like, when he got older, he created Skeletor from Elmer. Wow. Now... I will say that there's an episode of The Ghost Adventure Peeps, you know, Dibbic Douche, mm-hmm. and they go to Stone Lion Inn. And I've covered that place, and I swear I do not remember them mentioning Elmer McCurdy, or maybe I just didn't think it was important at the time. But the cemetery that he's buried in is like across the street from the Stone Lion Inn. Mm hmm. And so they were like, maybe his ghost haunts the inn and blah, 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 blah. And so they did do like an EVP session at his grave. And like there were words like hang and homicide and something else that came about. And so like he did hang in the funhouse. And I mean, technically he was shot but yeah, that's a stretch though. Yeah. And also, I don't know. I just would like to think that Elmer's at peace and he's, he didn't have to endure all of the traveling he did. That's awful. It's really bad. And I mean, he died in his 30s and he traveled for over 66 years. Like, it's one thing if you, donate your body to something Mm -hmm. like that like you donate your body to science and so it gets all kinds of cut up whenever you're you know people are dissecting it and all of that first for science you know for example i was doing this continuing ed course and it had a cadaver lecture as part of it and it grosses colby out so of course i had to show him some of it and you know they have the face covered so you can't see them and then they have any identifying marks blurred out because it was like video So, like, any tattoos or anything like that that would be identifying marks, like I just said, it's you can't see it all. But it's for hand therapists. So, like, the legs were gone. And then they, like, disarticulated the arm so that you, like, they could dissect it and, you know, show you, like, the nerves and all of that. And so there was times where it was just an arm laying there. And it was times where it was, you know, just a torso with the legs disarticulated and all. And so Colby was like, wait, what? 
you know, like, <laughs> yeah, they like, what? You know, yeah. he was shocked, like, that it's not just a whole body there the whole time. So, mm-hmm. again, if you sign up for something like that, you know that that's what you're going to do for the betterment of education of yeah. people. You know, that's a whole nother ball game than somebody taking someone else's body to make money off of it in a way that they have not signed up for. Yeah. Because, again, I mean, technically, whatever company it is that's dispersing these bodies for cadaver labs is making money yeah so technically somebody's making money off their bodies but again they signed the dotted line they knew what they were getting into that's fair that's a fair trade right this is disgusting and you know you can make light of it because it's so long ago it's like oh you know it's it was even found in the 70s. Like, it was even found a long time ago. So you're a little more comfortable making light of it. But ultimately, this is some poor man's body. No matter how mm-hmm. shitty he was in real life, mm-hmm. it's still someone's body that was desecrated. Desecrated. Like, what kind... Like, if you know anybody that works in the funeral home, the funeral service industry, yeah, they're morbid. They make morbid jokes. Anybody in healthcare does too, because it's how you fucking cope. Mm-hmm. So it, there's nothing wrong with that. I make morbid jokes because, again, it's easier to cope with the trauma that you face literally every single day in your work when you can make these like icky jokes. But they're also kind and respectful and yeah, all of the things that they need to be for that job. And so what kind of funeral service person is like, you know what? Fuck them. That I didn't get my money back, and I used all that arsenic embalming stuff. We got to make my money back. I know. So I'm going to make a fucking marionette doll out of him, basically? Fuck that dude. And also, who would go by the parlor and be like, oh my God, that person looks amazing. I'm going to bury my mom. Like, I want them to do my parents. Exactly. No, because I would be like... What kind of person does uh-huh. this to a body? I'm not fucking using you, Thank you piece you. of shit. Yes. That's what I would do, too. I would be like, have you lost your fucking mind? Why would you do this to somebody? And it would be like, I mean, like, call the state fucking board. Like, <laughs> take this guy's license away. But things are very different now. Yeah. And they have to be because of <laughs> dodo birds like this guy. But And it's also, like, I mean, the very first people... They knew he was a corpse. Yeah. You know? They put money in his mouth. Mm-hmm. But then the people at the Pike Funhouse, the Laugh in the Dark Funhouse, they honestly did not know he was a corpse because people had put wax on him and stuff. Yeah. And, like, it had changed hands so many times. Oh, yeah. At that point, I mean, it's 50 freaking years. Yeah. They really thought it was just... A weird mannequin. Yeah. And at one point, he was sold to this wax museum... And I think in Canada, and they were like, he's kind of too, like, grotesque and not really lifelike because he was mummified. Yeah. You know, not, he wasn't like a wax figure, you know? And so they sent him back. And it's like, yeah, because he's a real person. Yeah. He doesn't look real because he is real. He looks dead because he is. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't look like Britney Spears standing there in her fucking whole denim outfit. Yeah, yes. But apparently the arsenic is what preserved him so well that, like, his skin and all of that, 
He wasn't just like bone. I mean, I'm not a doctor. You know that um, apple seeds have arsenic in it? No, but why are you so happy when you said that to me? I have a plan. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but really and truly, like you can like collect a bunch of apple seeds and like grind them up and poison somebody with it. Don't do that, but you can. She's saying this smiling to me, y'all. It's just a random fact for the day. Uh-huh. What's that applesauce you fed me earlier? <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimer, don't sue us and don't come for me because it's, uh, I'm not really trying to kill somebody. <laughs> and by don't come for me, I mean, please don't send the law because I was just telling you a fact. I'm not killing anybody. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I didn't know that. Really? I feel like I've told you that before. I don't know. Is it arsenic, too, that they smell like almonds when they yeah, die? Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. But it was from you, I think. I'm telling you, man, forensic files, you learn a lot of shit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of forensic files, my story was actually an episode of Forensic Files. Oh, shit. It's going to be a good one then. But it was also a recommendation from Lauren W. in the Facebook group, which is how I came about this story. So my story is about Mia Zapata. So Mia was born August 25th, 1965 in Louisville, Kentucky. My birthday month. That's my nephew Peyton's birthday. Well, it's my birthday month. Gotta make it about her, guys. (laughs) So Mia was super shy. She was that body type that people think it's okay to make fun of when you're not heavy. Like, people called her chicken because she was, like, thin and kind of lanky and hypermobile, you know. Mm -hmm. But eventually... Spoiler alert, eventually in life, she did, like, embrace the nickname, and it kind of became part of her identity. Like, even had, like, had it tattooed on her and wore shirts with it on. But but have you ever noticed that, like, why do people feel like it's okay to comment on someone's size? And that goes, like, this is a little bit of a soapbox, but that goes for someone who's thin and someone who's big. Yeah. I know. People do it all the time. Like, literally, I had a patient just yesterday tell me that... She used to be, and she did her arms out big. I mean, like, a little bigger than you. Girl, you know my nanny used to do that all the time. Like, yeah, she was big. I mean, not as big as you, but big. Exact words. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> cool. If you take nothing else away from this episode, stop talking about people's sizes, big or small. Yeah, because you don't know what's going on with people ever, ever. But we had people in our grade that... People would say, like, eat a cheeseburger, Mm -hmm. do all of that. And it's like, nah, they have other things going on. Right. They eat. All that to say, Mia was a little smaller in size, and she was kind of shy. But she did have a lot of friends. Not that she couldn't have friends because she's little, but I'm saying, like, just because she was shy. shy. Yeah. Yeah. But she did have a lot of friends. She was really good at sports, like swimming, but it really kind of wasn't her thing. She grew up upper middle class with, you know, kind of what seemed to be the perfect family. You know, mom, dad, brother, sister. So there's three kids total. But her parents did eventually separate, and her dad is the one that moved off. Mia was like this interesting soul that was Again, kind of in this mix of upper middle class going to like private schools type thing. But she herself was a little more edgy, you know, really into art, like very artistic, into poetry, that kind of thing. And when you put a microphone in her hand, it was like she transformed into who she really was. 
One article I read about her said that her voice was like a love child between Mama Cass and Janis Joplin. Oh, God. Which is like amazing. Yeah. That reminds me, there was a girl on America's Got Talent just, I think this last time or the time before, but she was real petite Mm -hmm. and stuff. And she also sang like that, that real like grit and hard. Yeah, kind of like a little raspy, but mm -hmm. like... But like just a very mature voice. How does that like yeah, that meaty sound, that hearty sound come out of that little body? Yeah. That's awesome. Well, because if you really do, I mean, all the speech therapists um about to listen to me are like insert eye roll, but I mean it really is how your vocal cords develop. And so someone smaller, their vocal cords tend to be of a certain pitch versus when you think of like this operatic singer, you know. So that's why things like The Voice exist with the blind auditions, because you can't put what you typically would expect of a person with a certain voice. After high school, Mia in 1986 went to Antioch College, and that's where she kind of found her people. She ended up forming a band with Joel Spleen, Matt Dresner, and Stephen Moriarty. They formed a band called the Sniveling Little Rat-Faced Gits. Okay. Well, apparently that's from Monty Python. Of course I didn't know I know. That. Everyone is like, again, insert fucking eye roll that y'all didn't know that. Oh, gosh. But they ended up shortening it to the Gits. So at school, the band, the Gits, was kind of, well, getting it. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I didn't even write that down. Also, do you remember uh, my mom on that song? By the Zach Brown band. Yes. It, Something up and get it. Get her. Gobble up and get, get it. it. Yeah. And it was, I want whatever she. Whatever it is. Yeah. She's got, she's got whatever, whatever it, it is. is. Those were the, her and my mama, Carrie and my mama, same person. <laughs> fuck up a lyric. But do you know how many times that my mama said, gobble up and get it? <laughs> About as many times as Carrie said, blah, blah, blah. No. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> So like I said, the band is starting to take off, and they have their own sound. So picture, I mean, it's the late 80s, going into the early 90s for this story. And when you think about what the music genre was back then, it was really starting this grunge movement. Yeah. And that is kind of the sound that the Gits had. Do you remember on 10 Things I Hate About You, that band that she really loved that he got to play at the school dance? Yes. Kind of that, but not that. Okay. So they decided that, look, if we're going to do this, we got to do this. And the band members ended up moving in 1989 to Seattle, which we know is Mm -hmm. like... That was like the... Yeah, the place to fucking be for any grunge band. Bands like Nirvana, Spin Doctors, Soundgarden, and this band called The Seven Year Bitch, which was, I love that fucking name. (laughs) Do you remember that movie with Marilyn Monroe called The Seven Year Itch? No. Okay. Well, that's all I could think about. But they're The Seven Year Bitch. And some of those band members were actually from the same college, the Antioch College, that Mia went to. Because that school was very um, progressive and they were trying out a bunch of different like curriculum types and to see what works for kids. It was very like, so it wasn't cookie cutter. It was, it was more tailored to musicians and and that kind of thing. So a lot of people I think kind of came from that school. 
So the Gits were literally, I mean, like doing the damn thing in Seattle. They were really taking off and gaining steam and doing shows at the same places as Nirvana and like the same times. Like you'll you'll see this. There's this poster and it's like Nirvana, the Gits, and somebody else, like all at the same oh, show. That's cool. So it's I think that Beck even opened for them. Like it's, oh wow, yeah, they were really gaining steam and had finished their first album called French and the Bully, and then they were starting to plan like a U.S. and really world tour. So they were kind of a big deal. And people knew who Mia was because she was the vocals for the band. And she was also just this great person because, you know, if again, if you think about the time and, you know, we know that there was a lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol, and she was really there for her friends in Seattle and would help people out of their addictions and was just very non-judgmental and just was like this beacon of light for her friends in Seattle. Well, early July, Mia had just gotten back to Seattle from a California tour that the Gits had just finished. And it went super, super well. When they got back, the band had a meeting with a record label. And they were in this, what do we do? You know, we want to stay true to our roots. We want to still be this grunge band that's you know, all about the community and helping people. And, you know, it's not all about the money, but we also have to sustain ourselves. So we kind of need this and we want to be more successful like Nirvana is. So we kind of need a label. So, you know, the band was kind of grappling with this. Yeah. And which I think is so interesting that I did this story right as we just talked about doing ads. And we talked about that at the beginning of this episode because this was just such a small piece of the story, but I I don't know. It resounded with me. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So they had had the lunch with this, with this record label. They had had another one that was kind of, you know, touching base, like, Hey, we're interested kind of thing. And they had just come off of this Californian tour And so Mia was doing really well. She did drink a lot and smoked pot and she would kind of dabble in the harder drugs, but it wasn't, it wasn't like a consistent thing, but she did drink a lot and it was something that her band members had brought up to her. So she had actually not had anything to drink for two weeks just to kind of like cleanse herself. I don't think it was like a, I'm never going to drink again. Like it wasn't, it wasn't about that. It was just being like, okay, look, I can control this. Like it's, you know, I don't know. I just pictured it more being like, hey, we're okay. We're talking to these labels. I promise my drinking, I can get under control. I don't know. I don't want to put words yeah. in her mouth because I wasn't fucking there, but it didn't, it just felt like she was doing it just to be like, you know what? I can do this. Yeah. So her dad, after her parents got divorced and he moved away, actually only lived like an hour or two away from Mia now in Seattle. So they did their best to see each other every couple of months. She was really close to her mom and her siblings too, but she was able to see her dad more often because he's closer to her in Seattle, whereas they're still in Kentucky. So on July 6th, 1993, Mia wakes up at about 11 and she goes to meet her dad for lunch 
They go to lunch at a Thai restaurant in town. Then they walk over to Tower Records. Then they go to the Seattle Art Museum. They had a good time hanging out with one another. And at three o'clock, they say their goodbyes. And he leaves and Mia goes on about her day. So she goes home because she knows that she's got a lot of recording later that day. So she goes home at about three, does some laundry, takes the dog out, you know, does the crap nobody wants to do. At about 630, she goes to these apartments, the Winston apartments. And this place was kind of cool because it's apartments. But in the back of it, it's also a rehearsal studio where her band is. I think that the Seven Year Bitches recorded there. And then another band called Hell's Smells recorded there, too. So the thing about Hell's Smells was that there was a guy in the band named Robert. Now, Robert was Mia's boyfriend, well, ex-boyfriend, because they had just broken up. And this would be so hard. But she sang backup vocals for his band, Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So at 630, when she went to these apartments, she was going to rehearse with his band singing backup vocals. And this was a heartbreak for Mia because she, like, they had talked about marriage. Like, they, I mean, they were in it. He was 20 years older than her. And, like, she thought he was the one. And now they're broken up. And he's already got another girlfriend. Wow. And she has to go sing backup vocals for him. Wow. So you can imagine how fucking hard that was. I would have been like, <coughs> I'm sick. Yeah, okay, mean girls. So she rehearses with them for about two hours. When that's over, she leaves and she goes to this place called the Comet Tavern. Why this was so important was because Mia was meeting some friends. They were going to hang out and drink that night and just kind of pour one out for the homies thing because it was the around the year anniversary of one of their friends' deaths. Her name was Stephanie Sargent. She was the lead guitarist and one of the co-founders of the band Seven Year Bitch. She was addicted to drugs, and one night after some partying with drugs and alcohol, had gone home and fallen asleep on her back and asphyxiated on her own vomit, which is oh my so gosh. common when, as a way of dying for people when they're yeah when they OD like that. Unfortunately, so, yes, and that just broke my heart. Like just when you, I don't know, it's like you know that, but when you hear it, I don't know. That just struck me, which is why I'm telling y'all because you know one of the podcasts I was listening to talked about that. I don't know, it just struck me, and it was it was such a surprise and such a awful death for everybody involved and so Mia was meeting some of the band members from Seven Year Bitch and we're hanging out just to be like we miss you like you know just celebrating her life and so while Mia had been not drinking for two weeks she planned on turning up this night she was gonna party with her friends in remembrance of Stephanie and she planned on you know having a good night at that Comet Tavern, there's even a booth with Mia's name like carved in it because that was just like the local bar that the gets hung out at all the time with all their friends and all. So it was just like, it was like freaking cheers there for her. Yeah. Mia stayed there hanging out with her friends until about midnight. She said that she was going to go and look for Robert. 
So this part was kind of fuzzy for me, but from what I understand, the bar that they were at was just like a block away from the apartments where that rehearsal area was. So she went back there to look for him. He was already gone. All the band was gone. And she had a friend that, from what I understand, lived in that apartment there. And so she went up to her apartment and hung out with her. They drank some more. You know, we're talking about life and the boyfriend and he's moved on and all the things. And at about 2 a.m., Mia's like, all right, I'm going to head out. I want to go home. And her friend's like, no, 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 you should stay here like you've been drinking. Because Mia didn't have a driver's license, which don't drink and drive anyway. But Mia didn't have a driver's license. She walked everywhere, got cabs, that kind of thing. You know, no ride share at the time. And the girl whose apartment she was at was like, no, 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 just stay here. Like, you again, you've been drinking. Like, just hang out. It's 2 a.m. And Mia's like, no, 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 no. Because if she's anything like me, she's like, I want to sleep in my own fucking bed. Mm-hmm. I'll catch you tomorrow. So Mia leaves her apartment at about 2 a.m. She's got on her jeans, her boots, her black hoodie that says the gets, and her Walkman, and she hits the streets going home. And that was the last time that anyone saw Mia Zapata alive. Bless it. So from there, there's literally 80 minutes of unknown. We don't know where Mia went, what happened, who she saw. Did she go back to find the boyfriend? Did she go to another bar? Did she start walking home? You know, there's a there was a little... I'm picturing like a bus stop, but it was like for cabs kind of close that apparently she had been seen at. So maybe she was going to get a cab. One didn't come. So she decided to walk. But at 320 in the morning, two miles from that Comet bar, a sex worker was walking and on this kind of dead end part, she thinks that she sees trash, like a bag of trash And the closer she gets to it, she realizes that it's a body. Oh, gosh. So she walks over to a fire station that's right there next to where she found the body. And they come over and the body is still warm. Fuck. So they start, even though there's no pulse or anything like that, they start life-saving measures. But it was too late. And Mia was pronounced dead. Now, when Mia's body was found, she was found kind of in between like a church and something else religious. Like, I can't remember what it was, but it wasn't a church. Like, let's just say like this like church community center, because I can't remember exactly what it was. But she was found in between those two places. And when her body was found, her arms were out and her legs were crossed. So it was almost like she was in a cross. And then her hood was over her face. So we'll talk a little bit about that later. But the next day, when Mia didn't show up for a recording session, her friends and the band members are like, wait, 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 where is Mia? She's not going to miss a recording session. Like, something's fucking up. So they start calling around to hospitals, the police. And Stephen Moriarty says that somebody got the nerve to call the morgue. Oh, gosh. And when they did, that's when they got the news. Because the coroner was a fan of Mia. Oh, my god! And had been to shows and knew who she was. So he immediately recognized her. That's how they identified her. Because she didn't have any identification on her. 
well, one thing said no identification. One thing said her bra and like her wallet was stuffed in her pants pockets. But that's how they identified. Like he immediately recognized her and was like, oh, this is Mia Zapata. So when they called the morgue, the M.E. says, it's your singer. I'm sorry. You should get someone down here to identify her. Oh, my gosh. So police are going, what the hell happened? They do know from the autopsy that Mia was, in fact, raped and that she was strangled with the cord from her hoodie. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. But that she had a lot of abdominal trauma, like she'd been beat up some. And so even if she hadn't been strangled, she would have died from those wounds. Mm. Also, though, I thought you were going to say she was strangled with the cord from her Walkman. Oh, yeah. And I was like, like, I don't, you know what I, I don't yeah. know. That would just be, I don't know. But, you know, one thing, uh, one of the podcasts I was listening to talked about how, like, poignant in the worst possible way that she was strangled. And, like, she was so known for her unique voice. That's so true. So I can't take credit for that. That's not an original thought. But I was like, damn, that's, like you said, so true. There were bite marks on her breast, but they weren't deep enough for them to get like teeth impressions, but they were able to swab for saliva that was on her. But you also have to remember, it's 1993. While there's DNA, there was such a small sample. And I don't even I don't think at the time that they could even extract DNA from saliva. So thank God the coroner had enough foresight to be like, okay, I'm going to collect this and I'm going to put it in long term storage in the cooler. And we'll just let it sit there till, until technology catches up. So the police, of course, and her family and friends are like, who in the fuck did this? Their first thought is the boyfriend, Robert. They know that she had been looking for him earlier in the night when she left that apartment at two. She said that she was going to go look for him again. So they, of course, immediately hone in on him. The police do their due diligence. They're looking in to him and... He had an alibi, a a good alibi. He was with, unfortunately, the new girlfriend, but he did have an alibi. He was very cooperative, gave DNA, hair samples, all the things, took two different polygraphs, passed them both. And they were like, no, he seems genuinely upset by this because they hadn't been broken up for very long. And he, again, he just seemed so genuinely upset And again, all the other things checked out. So they're like, this isn't him. So he was cleared. And Mia was so famous in Seattle that it's like, it could be anybody. So of course, they're looking at all of her friends, but they also have such a wide pool of suspects because of how famous she was. Was it a fan that was obsessed with her? Was it, you know, all of these things? And so the other thing that they're looking at is, okay, well, how was she positioned? And, okay, so was it, like, in a cross, she's next to these two, like, the church and all? What, you know, was that something with it? The Green River Killer had been active in that time, too. And so they're like, is she another victim of the Green River Killer? But they were, they quickly ruled out that, no, it wasn't him. It didn't fit the pattern. But it was just like they were hitting dead end after dead end. About a month after Mia's murder, this woman was walking down the street about a block from that Comet Tavern, the bar. 
And she noticed there was this car, like, trailing her, basically. So she's like, oh, maybe, like, whoever it is, like, they want to give me a ride. But, like, the more she, which is weird, (laughs) don't get in cars with strangers. (laughs) Don't. That is not the first thought that would, you know what, maybe they want to give me a ride. Well, the more she gets a look, she realizes that the person driving the car is masturbating. And so she's like, yes. So she's like, well, this is weird. So... It was, I don't know if it was like when the driver saw that she saw, he sped off and she writes down the license plate number. She takes it to police and they're like, we, there, we got, we can't do anything. Like there's nothing, like there's literally nothing that we can do about this. It was just a car. We can't prove that they were like following you or anything like that. So they couldn't get him for like indecent exposure. I, how do you prove it? I guess. I don't know. Mm. So nothing came of that. And then people were like, well, did this have anything to do with drugs and sex work? Because of the part of town that her body was found in, it was a known area, again, for sex work and drugs and all of that. And so they're like, well, was this related to anything to do with that? But they knew that where her body was wasn't where she was killed. So that brought up a whole nother host of issues because... Do you basically have another crime scene that they have no idea where it is? So at this point, stuff is getting so cold. So the other members of the Gits decided to make an album with other bands so that they could sell it in order to hire a private investigator to help with the case because it was going cold. So this album had Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam. It had Hootie and the Blowfish. Don't oh it, don't it. Well, I think Hootie and the Bluffish just donated, but like it was, I'm talking people really, this was Mia's death, Mia's murder, let's call it what it was. Mia's murder was a huge deal for that Seattle grunge scene because wow. they were like, who did this? Is it one of our own? Are we safe? You know, it just brought yeah. up so many emotions and, you know, she was 27 years old and you know, it's like the curse of the 27 year olds when it comes to that kind of era and genre and all of that. And so it's just, it just was really hard on people. And so there were some really big names that participated and they ended up raising $70,000 and they hired this private investigator. Her name was Lee Heron. They hired her and I think she worked like three years on the case doing like 20 hours a week until that money ran out. And then she was so invested in the case that she's like, I'm fucking keeping on working on this because we got to figure out what happened to Mia. So the case goes cold. You know, the private investigator interviews thousands of people and she's working so hard to try to figure out what happened to Mia. But there was there was nothing. The case went cold because they were like, it has to be a stranger. Which makes it like finding a needle in a fucking haystack. Well, just like any episode of On the Case with Paula Zahn, eventually detectives go, you know what? Technology has improved. We should look and see what things we need to run and see if we can break open some of these cases, some of these cold cases. So in December of 2002, so we're hitting like nine and a half years after Mia's murder, The Washington State Crime Lab takes the saliva sample 
and is able to develop two different DNA profiles, one that's Mia's and one that is the killer. So at first, they run it through all the databases, CODIS, you know, the whole shebang, and they don't get a hit. Nothing. Well, it's one of those things that it just kind of like keeps running every so often, just be like, well, let's see if there's a result now. Well, let's see if there's a result now. Well, while this is all going on, Florida changes their laws. And in the state of Florida, they make robbery and burglary federal offenses. And so because it becomes a federal case, now they have to put their DNA in CODIS. So all of a sudden, the detectives get a fucking hit. They find out that the killer is Jesus Mesquia. I hope I said that correctly. So he had been living in Florida, doing all the crimes, and had been arrested for possession of burglary tools. Oh my God. Was in your fucking story. I had yes. never heard of that until this case. And then you said it during your story. Yeah. Did you see my face? Uh-uh. I, I, I tried to keep a poker face, but when <laughs> you said that in your story, I was like, skirt, what? Yeah. So he had been arrested for that possession of burglary tools. So that was a felony for him. And he had a lot of other convictions and because he was, I think he was on probation for that, all the things. Either way, they got his swab and it fucking matched. So you can't arrest someone just because the DNA matched. They had to prove he was in the area, all the things, because yeah. now he's in Florida. Well, that's Seattle. So where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Right. So, like I said, they do their due diligence and they prove that he was in Seattle at the time working in the area. And guess what? What? That was his license plate number <gasps> from that woman before who yeah. the guy was like telling her and masturbating. Oh my gosh. Yes. So he gets arrested and is actually. Thank God, convicted. So he was just a rando. Completely random. They would never... Oh, my God. They would have never caught him had that corner not had the foresight to go, let me save this. Yeah. Because it was such a small sample that even when they tested it... And there's like a... There's a forensic files on this. Honestly, I didn't watch it. But I think they talk about... Because it's, it's this special DNA test that they had just done. And it's like... I think they go into more detail on it about like how cool it was because it was really groundbreaking and all, you know, all the forensic files things. Yeah. But this guy's a really shitty guy. He had aggravated battery against a pregnant woman in 1997. Oh my gosh. Kidnapping, false imprisonment, robbery, indecent exposure from the 80s. Like this guy's a shit guy. Yeah. I mean, aside from the fact that we know that he killed Mia. Raped and killed. Yes. So he was convicted and... So he was convicted, and I'm making this these numbers up, but let's say that the sentence allowed was like 10 years to 20-something years. But the judge was like, no, this was like gruesome. I'm sentencing you to 36 years. Whoa. He actually got to appeal that, and they were going to overturn his sentence. Not not like, not overturn, re-sentence him, because basically 
the judge didn't have the power. The jury would have to be the one to be like, no, we're, we want to sentence him to 36 mm. years. It can't, the judge can't make that decision without the jury being like, yes. Okay. So they were appealing that and it was like going in his favor. But all of a sudden he was like, actually, I want to waive my right to that. And I'm just going to serve the 36 years. What? Very bizarre. But he actually is now dead. He died in jail. We don't know what, well, he actually died in the hospital, I think, but we don't know why because they're like, oh, it's privacy records, yada, yada, yada. But that guy, he did. And he served, I think, like 20 years of his sentence before he died. What a bizarre turn. I know. Wow. What one thing though that was cool was that me they I guess they didn't realize that Mia had actually finished all of her like recording parts for their second album, so they were able to release this second album. And I don't know, so I thought that was kind of a cool surprise. Yeah. And then they also released some old recordings of her like from college and stuff that were like never yeah. before heard. The Gits like tried to continue to be a band, and I think they had Joan Jett like as the singer for a little while, and it just wasn't the same and they yeah you know, they ended up breaking up that sucks but i mean how do you move on you know and it was like right after what was it a year maybe two after mia's murder kurt cobain died and, you know it was just like all this so stephanie died and then mia and then kurt cobain and then it was like it was just this yeah right after that was kind of when the scene took a turn and just didn't it just wasn't the same anymore yeah but it's kind of like you know how they say like selena died before she really made it and could have been like huge yeah i feel like that's what happened to mia too like Mm -hmm. i think mia would have probably been bigger than the gets no no i mean like the like the gets would have been like nirvana huge Mm. at the very least like savage garden that kind of huge you know is that not right? Soundgarden. <laughs> Soundgarden. Savage. Savage. I mean, that is another band, but totally different. Well, you know, what do, what do I know? <laughs> I did very good saying all those names, ma'am. You did. I was like, what, what? I'm so glad they found her killer, though. Oh, my God. But in her poor family, like, her dad would every so often, like, come back up to, to Seattle and literally retrace her steps to try to Gosh. figure this out. I mean, it was... Very, very traumatizing for people in the area because they were so confused and, you know, didn't know who to trust. And, you know, it was this person that they all loved and was that was such a like a cornerstone for them. And, you know, like a yeah. um, or like maybe touchstone is the word I'm trying to say, but she was just such a stable force for so many people. Like they talked about, I think it was Case File did this, the podcast did this story. And I think it was on there he was talking about how they had a um like a memorial for her and how many people brought yellow flowers because those were her favorite. And they were just stunned by all the people who came and how they would all talk about the ways that she touched their lives, helped them out of addiction, helped them through all of these different things. And they're like, we had no idea how many people she touched. Yeah. So, sidebar, who the fuck knew possession of burglary tools was a thing? I mean... And both of our... What are the fucking... When you said that, I'm telling you, I I think my jaw, like, scrolled down to the floor. (laughs) I know. I was like, oh, I can't wait till I say that part of my story. I gotta remember to say it, remember to say it, remember to say it. (laughs) 
Yeah, I didn't know that either, but... Because, you know, like, there's sometimes you get in your story and you're like, you forget to say something, yeah. you know, which is why I'm always at the end being like, yeah, and also, and then yeah. PSS, and then PPPPSSS. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. Well, we hope that y'all enjoyed 31 Nights of Halloween. We are going to hibernate for November. <laughs> Just kidding. We're going to not do anything different. <laughs> <laughs> no, we had so much fun. If you're in the Facebook group, we had Valerie do a tarot card reading in the main group and she fucking killed it. Oh and my then God, we had, so good. Yes. And then we had Michael do it in the Creep and Naughty group and he was fucking amazing. So we just had, I mean, just some a bunch of different stuff, different Facebook lives. And, you know, it was really awesome having the guests, Brandon Sheck Snyder. Alicia King Marshall, and then, of course, the fucking Killer Queens. Oh, my gosh. Right? All of them. Also, shout out to the Creepsters who went on Alicia's tour. Yeah. I was like, what? I know. Thank y'all for representing us. Yes. And thank you. Yes. Like, that blew my fucking mind. So, if y'all have any ideas for next year of 31 Nights of Halloween, something special that you want us to do, let us know because, you know, that shit starts getting planned in like September. So, <laughs> yeah, it needs to start now. <laughs> starts in September. So, we need y'all to hold us accountable. But more importantly, remember, creep it real and, and don't, don't get scared. scared.